Well, it's my task this morning to kick off this series. It's going to run until the beginning of the Advent season, which means we'll be in this series for a couple of months. But before I launch into it, I want to share with you an old fable. Some of you may be familiar with it, but I think if so, it bears repeating yet today. The fable goes like this. Long ago, three old men lived in a village in India. Each man was born blind, and the other villagers loved the old men and kept them away from harm. Since the blind men could not see the world for themselves, they had to imagine many of its wonders. They listened carefully to the stories told by travelers to learn what they could about life outside the village. The men were curious about many of the stories they heard, but they were most curious about elephants. They were told that elephants could trample forests, carry huge burdens, and frighten young and old with their loud trumpet calls. But they also knew that the Raja's daughter rode an elephant when she traveled in her father's kingdom. Would the Raja let his daughter get near such a dangerous creature? The old men argued day and night about elephants. First blind man claimed, an elephant must be a powerful giant. He had, I, he had heard stories about elephants being used to clear forests and build roads. Second blind man said, no, you must be wrong. An elephant must be graceful and gentle if a princess is to ride on its back. Third blind man said, no, you're wrong. I've heard that an elephant can pierce a man's heart with his terrible horn. Finally, the villagers grew tired of all the arguments, and they arranged for the curious men to visit the palace of the Raja to learn the truth about elephants. A young boy from their village was selected to guide the blind men on their journey, and they each put their hands on their shoulders, and he led them to the Raja's palace. When they reached the palace, they were greeted by an old friend from the village who was a gardener at the palace grounds, and he led them to the courtyard, and there stood the elephant. The blind men stepped forward to touch the creature that was the subject of so many arguments. First blind man reached out and touched the side of the huge animal. An elephant is smooth and saddled like a wall, he declared. It must be very powerful. Second blind man put his hand in the elephant's limber trunk. An elephant is like a giant snake, he announced. Third blind man gave a tug in the elephant's coarse tail. Why, this is nothing more than a piece of old rope. Dangerous indeed, he said. And again, they began to argue. Wall, snake, rope. Stop shouting, called an angry voice. It was the Raja. How can each of you be so certain you were right, asked the ruler. Knowing the Raja to be very wise, they said nothing at all. The elephant is a very large animal, said the Raja. Each of you touched only one part. Perhaps if you put the parts together, you will see the truth. He is right, said the first blind man. To learn the truth, we must put all the parts together. Now why share that fable at the beginning of the series? It's because each week we're going to take a look at just one small part of our awesome God. One piece And yet no one is more important or more higher or more elevated than the other. They are all equal, and all the pieces together form our picture and our knowledge of God. So Pastor Kevin and I will do our best to explain each of the attributes that we cover, but also how it impacts us, and yet try to keep it all as part of one big whole. It's our prayer that by the end of the series, by the end of the series, we all have a clearer picture of who God is and a deeper experience of Him. With that in mind, we begin today with the wonder of, is God knowable? And to do so, we'll turn to two passages of Scripture. 
One from the Old Testament, Exodus 34, and then also from Philippians 3 in the New Testament. So I invite you to turn first to the 34th chapter of the book of Exodus. Let's hear this word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come to you, with you, or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people I will do wonders never before done in any nation in the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And then from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, the third chapter, the first 11 verses. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those, those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and have put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. May God add His blessing to this reading of His Word. Let's pray. Lord God, speak to us now and accomplish Your purpose within each of us. 
for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A few weeks ago I stood before you and said that my assigned passage, Revelation 6, covered a whole lot of material. I'm sort of saying the same thing today. <clears throat> if you take a <clears throat> concordance and take the words knowing and God, and when they connect together, well, you'll find a whole lot of verses. In fact, this past Monday, Barbara and I were having lunch after we got home from our weekend at Cran Hill, and she said to me, how's your sermon for Sunday coming? And I said, it isn't. <laughs> I went on to say that I had all kinds of ideas and concepts that I wanted to, to talk about and, and bring into the sermon, but I hadn't been able to figure out what passage or passages to use as the core from which it could all flow. <clears throat> and Barbara smiled and said, why don't you let this be the Sunday when you walk up to the pulpit and just open the Bible and point to a verse and preach on that verse? You think getting it from the hat is tough, huh? Right? Yeah. <clears throat> and I responded to her and I said, with my luck, I'd point to a verse that says, God is not knowable. And she said, is there such a verse? And about an hour later, I was downstairs. One of the first verses I turned to was Job 36:26. Look, God is exalted and unknowable. <clears throat> <clears throat> but this does raise the question, doesn't it? Is God knowable? Well, I certainly hope so, because we've just said we're going to spend the next two months trying to know God. So we hope He's knowable, and I assure you that He is. In fact, God invites us to know Him. Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. And he promises we'll know him. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. And Paul goes on to say that, or Jeremiah goes on to say that when we know him, we'll have reason for boasting. Jeremiah 9. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. So I guess our next question is, how then can we know God? Theologians and preachers have for years told us there are many ways to to know God. The most frequent mention, I suppose, are through creation, through His Word, through history, through prayer. But I think there's another question. What does it mean to know God? Because there's two kinds of knowing. There, there is certainly knowledge, knowing facts about God, knowing things about Him, things He does. But then there's also knowing in the intimate sense, knowing God in our hearts, having experience of Him. In other words, it's possible to know God in our heads, but not in our hearts. Our key biblical word for to know, in fact, means deep intimacy. It's the word that is used when the Bible says that Abraham knew his wife Sarah and she gave birth to a son. It means an intimacy of heart and soul and mind and body, an intertwining of whole beings. It's the same word the psalmist uses when he says, God knew us. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. It's an intimate knowledge. 
The prophet Jeremiah claimed in Jeremiah 31, I will put my laws in their minds, I will write them on their hearts, for everyone from the least to the greatest will already know me, says the Lord. And so it's, it's exciting when Paul writes about the fact that all the things about his life prior to Christ now, which was great for him, his knowledge and his status, is now garbage. Listen, Philippians 3 again. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, intimately knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Certainly, there's no shortage of materials in our day to fill our mind about God. Bibles galore, sermons on radio and television and all kinds of media, books by the hundreds. But I fear there is a shortage of this this first-hand experience of God. It's very easy to make an art form discussing about God and ideas about God but it's also easy to fail to have a hands-on experience with Him. So Paul reminds us that true knowledge of God is not in facts or theory, though they are important, but in a living, vital relationship with Him. Let's think of it this way. Most of all of you, you know me. I'm Pastor Curry, pastor of Carried Equipping here at Hope Church. You, you know me. You may know some other facts about me but there's a lot of things that maybe you don't know. Do you know me in a deeper, intimate way? Do you know my favorite foods? Do you know my favorite games, my favorite sports? Do you know my favorite Bible passages? Do you know what motivates me? Do you know how I relate to my wife, my family, and my friends? Do you know how I act when I'm up against it? Do you know what I do in the midst of suffering and difficulty? Do you know my core values? Do you know my routines throughout the day and throughout the week? There's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. And Moses knew that. And so just prior to the passage we read about Moses on the mountain, he pleaded with God, Exodus 33:13, If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you. And as we read a few moments ago, God responded and He appeared before Moses and He passed in front of Moses, Exodus 34, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, Moses now went from head knowledge to heart knowledge. He had experienced God. So that raises a fourth question. How can we know God intimately? We're probably not going to go up on Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments and have God pass in front of us, so how can we know Him Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Jesus is the full image of God. If God had a thesaurus, next to His name would be a picture of Jesus. He is the authoritative translation. He's the perfect picture of who God is. So we know God intimately through knowing Jesus intimately. We've heard it in the prayer. We have sung it already this morning. If anybody understood it, it was the Apostle John. 
I was amazed as I was preparing this week how many times John stressed Jesus saying this for us. John 8, 19. You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. 10, 14, and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. 10.30 I and the Father are one. 14.6 and 7 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know Him and we have seen Him. And over in chapter 17 Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known intimately to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, that I myself may be in them. No wonder that was Paul's post-conversion desire. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection. I want to know it in my heart. So that really brings us to our fifth and vital question. How can we know Jesus intimately? And from our Scriptures today, I want to point out five pathways to knowing Jesus intimately. First, Walk the pathway of faith. Accept as true, John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It means to accept the gospel. Acknowledge that indeed you are a sinner who is saved only by the grace of Jesus Christ. He died to save you. He rose from the grave to fill you with His resurrection power. It means to ask Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said it again in a different way in the 11th chapter of John. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. And then John came to the end of his Gospel, 20th chapter, and he, in verse 30, and he said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. One spring day, a little six-year-old boy and his mother were out working in the garden. The mother was working. The boy was looking around, picking up the flowers. and He picked up a, a daffodil bud, sat on the ground, and he studied it for a little while. Eventually he tried to force it open, but, but he kept getting frustrated and he couldn't. And so he, he cried out, Mommy, why is it when I try to open the bud it just falls to pieces and dies? How does God open it into a beautiful flower? And before she could even answer, he blurted out, Oh, I know. God always works from the inside. What a truth out of the mouth of babes. When you believe in and receive Jesus Christ, He will transform you from the inside out through His Holy Spirit. William Sangster, the great 
Methodist British preacher, wrote concerning Jesus' death. If he was a man, it was murder. If he was God, it was an offering. If he was a man, it was martyrdom. If he was God, it was a sacrifice. If he was a man, they took his life from him. If he was God, he laid it down himself. If he was a man, we are called to admiration. If he was God, we are called to adoration. If he was a man, we must stand up and take our hats off. If he was God, we must fall down and give him our hearts. Let's take home number one. Are you walking the pathway of faith? Have you given Jesus the permission to take over your life? If not, why not? Let this morning be your appointment with Jesus. Second, if you truly believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will walk the pathway of obedience. We don't fully know God by walking with faith. That gets us started on the pathway. We begin to fully know Him when we walk in obedience. Obedience to the Word of God and obedience to Jesus leads to a deeper relationship with Jesus and then to God. When you do what He says, you experience His presence. Again, the Apostle John knew it. We've read some wonderful passages from his Gospel. Here's from his first epistle, John 2, 1 John 2, starting at verse 3. And we can be sure that we know Him if we obey His commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's Word truly show how completely they love Him. That is how we know we are living in Him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. The old preacher Philip Brooks gave tremendous assurance and a challenge. He said, only when a man tries to live the divine life can the divine Christ manifest Himself to him. Therefore, the true way for you to find Christ is not to go groping in a thousand books, it is not for you to try evidences about a thousand things that people have believed of Him. But it is for you to undertake so great a life, so devoted a life, so pure a life, so serviceable a life, that you cannot do it except by Christ, and then see whether Christ helps you. See then whether there comes to you the certainty that you are a child of God. And the manifestation of the child of God becomes the most credible, most certain thing to you in all of history. When you live in obedience, you deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's take home number two. Are you living in obedience? Are you doing what the Word of God tells you to do? Do you live as Jesus tells you to do? Is there some area of your life where you are wrestling, struggling with obedience? Let this morning be the time you get in the obedience path. Thirdly, walk the pathway of service. Again, from the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. John understood it. He not only wrote about it, he not only knew it in his head, he knew it in his heart and life. Again, from his first epistle, the third chapter. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He has commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in Him, and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. Paul said his losses were what made it possible for him to become like Jesus in his death. Paul knew that dying to himself was never a loss. It was always a gain. Probably only a few of us can remember a movie from many years ago and a book, Bridge Over the River Kwai. That story was based upon something which is critical for us, I think, to understand this morning. The Irish Republican Army had what they called a mucker system. It's a system in which, inside the prison camp, the prisoners would pair off, and each would have a mucker. And here's how it worked, for example. One day, one of the two men fell ill with malaria. Now, since the captors basically gave only one aspirin to those who took ill, most people never recovered. So when someone took ill, they were placed in, in a bamboo hothouse where all the sick people were lodged. If somebody died, their body remained there till the end of the week, and then the house would be burned with all the dead bodies inside, and a new one would be built for the next week. So this man got malaria, and he was placed in the hothouse. But every mealtime, under the penalty of death, his mucker would leave his eating quarters and go and take food to his friend in the hothouse. And every night after dark, again under the penalty of death, he would take his blankets and go and wrap them around his friend in the hothouse to keep him warm. At the end of the week, the man who had malaria was well. But his mucker friend contracted malaria, and died. On the one hand, it's a sad story. But consider the ending, that through it all, a large portion of the camp was converted to Jesus Christ because of the shining example of this one man who was filled with Christ-like love. By the time the war ended and the camp was closed, there was a symphony orchestra inside the camp, and there were worship services every Sunday, all because one man, one mucker, considered others better than himself, and he lived for others. So here's take-home number three. Have you adopted the lifestyle of servanthood? Are you living for others? What would it look like for you to start mucking people. Today is the day to start.
Fourthly, Paul's words from that third chapter of Philippians, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him. Walk the pathway of suffering. They sang about that right during the offering this morning. Paul knew from Isaiah 53 that Jesus was a man of deep sorrow and suffering acquainted with grief. And therefore he considered all of his own suffering as simply a way of knowing Christ more intimately. And Paul in all of his letters lets us know that his life was not easy once he became a Christian. He experienced a thorn in his flesh, shipwrecks, stonings, beatings, robberies, rejection, mockery, malicious gossip, imprisonment, persecution. But he said it all drew him closer to Jesus and he could finally write to the church at Rome. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Elizabeth Elliot Gren told of Judy Squire, who was a friend of hers. Judy was born without legs. But Judy was a radiant woman who loved her Lord Jesus. Came a day when Elizabeth asked Judy to write a letter to the family of little Brandon Scott. Little Brandon was also born without legs. So Judy wrote them a letter. She related that this would be at least a hundred times harder for them than it would be for Brandon. For, she said, a birth defect by God's grace does not rob childhood of its wonder, nor is a child burdened by high expectations. And then towards the end of the letter, she wrote that they had been chosen in a special way to display his unique masterwork. I pray that your roots will grow down deep into the faithfulness of God's loving plan, that you will be awed as you witness the fruits of the Spirit manifested in your family. And then she said, what the caterpillar calls the end of the world, the Creator calls a butterfly. So Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, Ephesus 1, 11 and 12, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we received an inheritance from God, for He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. Take home number four. In the midst of your sufferings, whatever they may be, are you willing to give God the glory? This morning is the time to start. And fifth, and of critical importance, walk the pathway of testimony. Wherever you are, whatever the circumstances, speak Jesus. A French philosopher, Albert Camus, once said, the world expects of Christians that they will raise their voices so loudly and so clearly and so formulate their protest that not even the simplest man can have the slightest doubt about what they are saying. If that's what the world expects, let's not disappoint the world. We speak Jesus. Speak Jesus at every opportunity. And when you do, you will experience the power and victory of our Lord. One of my favorite verses in the book of Revelation is Revelation 12:11. There's a reference there to, to Satan being hurled down. And a loud voice proclaims, They, that is the martyrs, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word 
of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb defeated Satan and took away his power, and it is our testimony that holds his power in check. Every time we stand up in opposition, every time we speak a testimony, every time we speak out against the evil of our age, every time we call for Jesus to, be, to show His power, every time we witness to Jesus, especially in the face of persecution and opposition and death, Satan is knocked down and defeated all over again. This is a call to stand up, to speak up, and to shout out for Jesus. And when we do, we will experience God in amazing ways. The final take-home is number five. Are you willing to speak Jesus, to speak the name of Jesus anywhere and everywhere? In that wonderful celebration held here yesterday for the life of our brother Travis, it was so obvious that because he chose, no matter what, to speak Jesus, life after life, around him was transformed. Think about it. Because his name is power, because his name is healing, because his name is life, are you willing to shout Jesus from the mountains, Jesus in the streets, Jesus in the darkness over every enemy, to shout Jesus for your family, to speak Jesus? Why not start today? Sharpshooter Matt Emmons had a gold medal in sight. He was one shot away from claiming victory in the 2004 Olympic 50-meter rifle event. Didn't even need a bullseye to win. All he had to do was hit the target. His average score was 8.1, which would be more than enough to get the medal. But for some reason on this day, as he stood in lane two, he shot at the target in lane three. Got a zero. Wound up in last place. It doesn't matter how great or how popular you are or how many things you do that might be good if you're aiming at the wrong thing. If you want to know God intimately, walk the pathways that lead to knowing Jesus. No matter the strength of your relationship with Jesus this morning, there's more than likely some pathway you're not walking or hesitating or struggling to walk or some part of your heart that you're withholding from Him. May this be the moment you give your heart to Jesus because that is, after all, all He really wants. Let's pray. Glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, give us that spiritual wisdom and insight so we may grow in knowledge of you. I pray that our hearts will be flooded with light so we can see and understand the confident hope that you have given to those you have called, that you've given to us, your holy people who are rich, and give the glorious inheritance. I pray we will come to understand the incredible greatness of your power for us who believe. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has never opened their heart to you, 
may this be the moment. May they simply say, Lord, come. I want to know you. For those who struggle with their relationship with you, those who struggle with obedience, those who struggle with, in the midst of suffering, those who, who struggle to speak Jesus, Lord, may they open themselves to your power in your presence. Lord, do a mighty work in us and send us forth to set the world on fire for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.